This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. That is the sound of the Ukrainian national anthem as it was played at a flag raising at Toronto City Hall. And sadly, it is easier to mark Ukraine's 31st Independence Day here than in Kyiv. Today also marks a grimmer anniversary, exactly six months since Russia invaded. Back then, the conventional wisdom was that Russia would roll over the sovereign nation in a matter of days. That did not happen, but this has become a war of attrition, a war we have become accustomed to, a war that is often off the front pages and not top of mind. And other factors have changed. At the beginning, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment in Russia. People were leaving. There was speculation that dissident elements could overthrow the dictator Vladimir Putin. Now there is widespread support in Russia for this invasion. We'd like to hear from you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. For now, let's bring in Professor Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Toronto branch, and from Kyiv, Ukra- uh, Roman Waschuk, the former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine. Welcome and thank you all. Roman, let us begin with you. Um, how is it going there? What, how, what's it like? Well, uh, we are on, I think, uh, the sixth air raid alarm of the day, uh, but without yet having seen the uh, much-feared massive Russian missile assault on downtown Kyiv. I was, uh, in my new job as business ombudsman, supposed to have a meeting with a government official this morning. It was moved to tomorrow because I said, yeah, this being anywhere near the government district is a bad idea uh, today. But looks like so far, either Ukrainian air defense is doing very well, or the Russians, even in this respect, are not as powerful and scary as they make themselves out to be. Is it, is it possible they're lulling you into some kind of sense of security? Uh, that is possible. Uh, and, you know, uh, anything can happen. Uh, but... I think one of the things that has happened, and it's a physical manifestation, is the uh, sort of Russian zombie parade on the uh, main street of Kiev, where basically destroyed Russian armor is arrayed in the parade, victory parade they never had, uh, that there's a degree of demystification of Russia as this all-powerful, amazing, 
military machine where it turns out that uh, a smaller neighbor and ordinary citizens and brave soldiers can actually stop it in its tracks. Peter Sturin, what's your reaction to what Roman is saying? Well, it's uh, it's very heartening to hear, Roman, that, uh, that at least the bombs are not falling as, as the warnings came out from so many. Uh, the U.S. government has actually, was actually telling Americans to, to leave uh, the country for fear of, of the attacks. Uh, I did see that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in Kiev actually today, so, so maybe that's... Uh, helping the situation and and the Russians are maybe uh, thinking twice about uh, doing any terrorist acts at this particular time, although that hasn't stopped them in the past. Professor Janice Stein, um, where are we at? Has this become a war of attrition? Sadly, um, it has. Um, You know, it is Ukrainian Independence Day, as Roman was saying, um, and I think we should stop for just a minute and recognize just the enormous hardship that Ukraine has undergone over these last six months. Um, yes, they are fighting with extraordinary bravery and fighting back um, in every way that they can. But the damage that they have endured both in in casualties, human casualties, economic damage, which we don't talk enough about, um, is really extraordinary in this day and age. So this is a war, frankly, um, which I see no end to right now, in which Ukraine is undergoing extraordinary hardship and which the Russians are also losing and losing badly. It's tragic. Roman, I have to say, in your first comments, I was surprised when you were saying you were supposed to have a meeting and uh, just for today you're staying away from the business, uh, the government district. Uh, So are things sort of at a functioning in some kind of fairly normal way otherwise? Yep. Uh, I I think you need to sort of think about of Ukraine sort of the battle of Britain blitz spirit. Uh, in other words, I, I think most of us in countries that haven't undergone wars think of it as either on-off, whereas all sorts of things happen at the same time. Uh, so yes, you can in Kiev today, you can go into the supermarket and you can notice that this week uh, there's this range of you know yogurts on special. Uh, at the same time, you have regular air raid alerts saying you could get blown up. Uh, there are, you know, I'm standing here in the Holosivsky district, further away from the government center, uh, next to a park and a, a riverside, a sort of a pond-side restaurant where people are enjoying family meals and embroidered shirts to celebrate Independence Day. So, yes, uh, companies are relocating, they're reprofiling their production. So the economy has suffered, but the economy is transforming and it is adapting to meet uh, the situation. It, so, so it's it, you, you got to be able to live with a lot of paradox and a lot of things happening at the same time. Peter Sturin, oh, first of all, I have to say I noticed that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was wear it was wearing an embroidered shirt in khaki. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, Peter, uh, again, so what do you 
make of this? And what do you make of, for instance, the seemingly increasing support for the invasion in Russia? Uh, it's very hard to gauge in terms of if, if it's increasing or it's at where it was from the very beginning. Um, obviously, no one can trust any pollsters uh, taking taking stats uh, from Russia, but uh, but clearly, we're we're certainly not seeing enough uh, enough resistance, or uh, for for that matter, people taking uh, Russians uh, standing against the government, even in the West uh, here in Canada. Um, there's no there's no demonstrations to mention of larger the larger Russian community or in Europe and other places. So that part is very disheartening. But what we are strengthened by is the resolve of Ukrainians and the rest of the democratic world stepping up today. The U.S. is announcing another two point nine billion dollars in funding, which is probably the largest tranche right now for weapons and aid to Ukraine. And that is making a huge difference and a, just a phenomenal impact. And the U.K. announcing as well support for micro-drones that they'll be shipping. So all of that Western support um, is, is uniting all of the NATO countries and the Western countries against what we know is, is, is Russia, uh, Russia's terror against uh, countries that want no part in, in their world. Janice Stein, what about the economic sanctions? I think at the beginning we thought they would have a very big effect. What we're seeing now is that Germany had to blink and we had to uh, allow that turbine to be sent back because they are still dependent on Russian uh, natural gas. Uh, We're also seeing that some of the goods, the Western goods that were cut off, Russia is starting to get some of them from third-party countries like China. Uh, so uh, where are the economic sanctions at? So, um, Libby, economic sanctions work very slowly. They were never the magic bullet, frankly, that the hype suggested they would be. The impact of the sanctions will take years, on, and that's the dilemma. Does Ukraine have years? Can it sustain this kind of punishment for years? But the, the real impact of the sanctions is the denial of high-technology um, imports into Russia, which Russia needs to run its advanced um, manufacturing sector, even to manufacture some of the military equipment that it uses. Russian economy has already shrunk by 4% in the last quarter, which is significant. The impact will grow over time, but there's a race here. Um, if you look at the damage to the Ukrainian economy during this period of time, it is by order of magnitude greater. So people have to be realistic about what these sanctions can accomplish. Uh- Roman, um, tell us about your work as a business ombudsman and what's your sense of how people are managing economically? Uh, I think Janice is right that, uh, you know, Russia maybe has shrunk by 4%. Ukraine is maybe between 30 and 40%. Wow. Literally, yes. Right. An order of magnitude. Uh on the other hand, Ukrainians are very resilient. They are tested by past crises. Uh, you have a situation now where four to six million Ukrainians are outside the country in various countries of the European Union, partly in Canada as well. Uh, reducing 
part of the pressure, but also part of the productive capacity of the country. You have certain sectors that are, that are actually growing. Ukraine's IT sector actually grew in the first half of the year. Uh, people are able to keep working. Uh, others that are severely stressed, obviously, uh, agriculture, metals has been uh, hit so hard with Mariupol, the sort of martyr city on the Sea of Azov. Uh, two huge uh, steel plants simply blasted to smithereens by the Russians. Uh, but what we are seeing is, for example, Ukrainian manufacturing migrating from the east and the south to the west. Uh, we're seeing, in fact, uh, and these are contrarian investors thinking about what can we do on in Ukraine on the expectation that this will work itself out in the next six months. Uh, so, again, it's, it's a very picture, very challenging. Uh, part of Ukraine's uh, external assistance hasn't arrived as quickly as hoped for. The European Union is wrangling over how to raise the eight billion euros they promised in support. They've only delivered one out of nine. Eight billion are still outstanding, so that is stressing the country. The exchange rate, uh, the national bank has to print money. That's a dangerous policy. So, uh, but people are uh, are. Uh, working things through. I was in the supermarket yesterday, and uh, the shelves are not quite as full as they were six months ago. They're still pretty full. And uh, is there a sense, I mean, are people kind of digging in indefinitely, or do you sense when is the fatigue going to set in? Well, uh, if there's one place where there's no Ukraine fatigue, it's Ukraine. (laughs) Um, And, you know, people are once they've mastered the first shock and overcome the first shock, are actually strengthened by the challenge. Uh, my organization, the Business Ombudsman Council, uh, we had about 10 people, uh, mostly our, our female staff, because they were allowed to leave the country, who left. Uh, all of them are now back in Ukraine because they just feel that it's the right thing to do. They feel they can find ways to manage the situation. Uh, they continue to be employed. So uh and and if anything they are more resilient and prouder than ever uh of the country and determined uh to make things work so uh ukrainians are now two to three times more likely to respond to pollsters saying they think the country is headed in the right direction than it was before the war now obviously materially it's worse off but people feel more of a sense of purpose um you know, uh, Peter, Russians also uh, see themselves as being very resilient and being able to withstand hardship. Um, I guess, uh, you know, that's not surprising given that Russians and Ukrainians are actually cousins. But um, what's your sense of it in terms of how long people can withstand this? I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, it, 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 you know, as uh, as a former military officer told me, um, it's a lot easier to fight for what you believe in when you're standing in front of your home protecting your family. It's a lot more difficult to go and fight in a foreign battle, killing people that want nothing to do with you. So, you know, you may, I don't necessarily agree with the comment that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are cousins. Uh, we've been in conflict for centuries. Russia Lots of cousins not. are. 
Yeah, well, Russia thinks that we're about as close as Spaniards and Italians are. You know, use the same alphabet, and it's uh, came it, the history uh, kind of intertwines at a certain point. But at a certain point in history, you say, uh, you know, I'm sure the Scots and the Irish don't agree that they're the same as the English either. So. Uh, we're a different people, we're a different nation, we're a different language, we're different history, different culture, and uh, we've proven that to the world. And unfortunately, Russia still doesn't get that. Uh, they want their empire back, and they're not going to have it because you have 40 million people that are resisting. It's not just a couple hundred thousand soldiers, it's millions, and it's the greater Ukrainian nation, which is basically 60 million people worldwide want nothing to do with Russia. Russia does not have the same values that Ukrainians do, which is everything we here in Canada, we recognize as, as, as what is the appropriate way to, to live your life. In freedom, in harmony, in, in love for your fellow brother. And unfortunately, Russia is still living in the past of the dictatorial rule and willing to beat someone into submission to agree with them. And we know in the end where that ends. It has failed in the past. It is definitely going to fail this time. Uh, Roman, I think a siren went off there. Uh, That's correct. So uh, most Ukrainians around me in the park are ignoring the sirens, but as a risk-averse Canadian, I think I'm heading for some cover. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know if you can stay on the phone while you do, but uh, the important thing is to stay safe. Okay. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's what I promised my mother, so it's okay. If she's listening, Mom, I'm going to a safe location. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Roman. And I think uh, that tells us more than anything while we are here. Um, and uh, I guess that happens, too. I think that happens in Israel sometimes when they start ignoring sirens. Uh, let's hope that um, uh, that people stay safe. Absolutely. Turning to some of the latest news, Janice Stein, uh, so we had this episode of the daughter of the far-right mm-hmm. nationalist, Alexander Dugin, uh, being mm-hmm. killed in a car bomb, probably that was intended for him. And that's one of the reasons that people are really afraid of a really bad reprisal today. Uh, what do you think that will result in? You know... Uh- there are two, this is a very dangerous war. Um, and you're right, Libby, to say that it's not on the front pages and the public turns its attention to other things, but we should not be lulled into complacency in any way. There are two spots right now that could, frankly, blow, right? One is the Zaporizhina nuclear reactor, um, which we are a hair's breath from an accident happening, which could spread radiation, and the United Nations scrambling in vain, um, others as well trying to get Russians to agree to inspections. No luck so far. That is something that I am really watching and focused on. Now, the second was the assassination. Uh, That goes right to the heart of the people who support Vladimir Putin most closely. Uh, And it's a bizarre story, and right now we can't confirm any details of who did it. Uh, But the story um, that is being released by the Russians is that it was someone who crossed into Russia and then fled across the border to Estonia. 
Now, Estonia is a member of NATO. If there is any retaliation against this, and if the story is true, who knows? And if there is any retaliation against Estonia, a member of NATO, all of us, United States, Canada, every one of us, is obligated to come to the defense of Estonia. So you see the multiple points here where this could, in a flash, escalate. Well, and they have threatened Estonia. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. There were terrible relations between the government of Estonia and the government of Russia, and Estonians are among the three or four most apprehensive about long-term Russian intentions. So when everybody says this is settled into a routine, uh, don't fear escalation, this is not dangerous, I think they are being lulled into a false sense of confidence here. Any war like this is always dangerous, but there are points where it's all too easy to see a path where this could go badly wrong. Well, of course, the Russians are saying that it was a Ukrainian assassin. Mm-hmm. The Ukrainians are denying it. Is is there any kind of independent intelligence nope. on it? Nope. <laughs> that, and that's very important for our listeners to understand. Um, I, I would assume that uh, the United States and and, it, and our partners, which are the Five Eyes, have the best intelligence because we have, the United States certainly has people on the ground that are in Ukraine, um, and they have people in Moscow as well that are monitoring and collecting, and we have access to satellite imagery, Libby, which is very good, but they're not sharing for good reason. There's a no comment, an official no comment. So everything you read in the newspapers and everything the Russian government says is speculation. But it's dangerous speculation because it's when they release these kinds of stories that you see them laying track for some sort of reprisal, which is inevitable. It is inevitable because the pressure will build on Putin. Well, the the other question that I have uh, is, uh, you know, I don't think they need an excuse. I mean, well, we haven't seen... not true, Libby, because if you look at... The, I mean, not true in that way. Because you actually look at the six months. There have been rules. It's hard sometimes for people to see this, but there are rules of the road here that they've worked out. So one of the rules of the road is the United States does not send its military directly. It sends everything short of that, but it does not have military forces on the ground in Ukraine. There's every other kind, but not military. And Biden made that clear from day one, and they followed that rule of the road. Russia, interestingly enough, had multiple opportunities to attack convoys of um, shipments, which are absolutely crucial to, to Ukraine's survival. The travel overland from Poland and Romania has not done it once. Now, that's not by accident. Interesting. Um, Peter, um, I want to turn to uh, some of the Ukrainian uh, refugees or permanent uh, temporary residents here in Canada. Uh, how is that going? We keep hearing about people actually who have left Ukraine actually returning lately. Most of those people probably from closer countries. But w- what is going on here with the influx of people? very interesting dynamic it's it's different than anything we've ever seen 
uh, in Canada, whereas in the past, the Ukrainians and East Europeans arriving in Canada came here as immigrants, refugees, and really uh, the plan was to stay here forever. The plan now is absolutely very different, as the majority of men are not allowed to leave the country because of martial law. So what we see is a lot of women with families or men with families of three or more children. That's the under martial law, they've allowed that. So if someone has three or more children, uh, they, the men would, were allowed to leave. But even those families, uh, I met a family recently with three children, and the gentleman was here for, for three weeks, and he just said, i got to go back. I have a very successful business. I have uh, everything there on the ground. I don't want to lose it. Uh, I love Canada. It's a beautiful place. But I want my fa- family to come home because we know we are going to prevail. So it's a very different dynamic than what we've ever seen before. There will be families that, that will want to stay, although all of, right now they're all being given temporary visas for three years. And that's it. They don't have refugee status. Uh, they don't get any direct uh, financial support, uh, be it welfare or such. Uh, Ontario and other provinces have offered OHIP, so they have health coverage. Uh, but housing is still a big issue. It's difficult. Um, in fact, some of the families we met, they said, you know, we thought we had a lot of money when we came here because we started life saving. And so maybe they had ten or $12,000, and they realized that's maybe enough to live for three months in Toronto. Um, so the dyna- dynamic there from an economic point of view is also very challenging for them. But, uh, but if it's just a temporary thing, uh, we, we realize that the war can still go on for quite some, some time and there'll be aggression and attacks, but uh, we're much more optimistic that uh, Ukraine will have the forces to, to push back in very short order because uh, fighting a war in the wintertime on foreign land, uh, Russia doesn't have a very good history with that. And now with the direct support coming in from the U.S., U.K., and other European countries, uh, that technology is far superior than anything Russia has. And uh, we're fairly confident that we're going to be starting to get more and more good news as opposed to, unfortunately, as we heard Roman um, go for shelter with the air raids going on uh, in Ukraine. Uh, we're, it all, there's also evidence that, that Russia is running out of any kind of sophisticated missile systems. They've used up their best weapons, so they got a lot of dumb bombs that they can just throw in the air can't really hit any targets very accurately. That's why they shoot at residential neighborhoods. They're not taking out military targets. Uh, but the Ukrainians are doing just that. The Ukrainians have uh, weaponry that takes out strategically all uh, Russian military targets, and it's draining them. Uh, so, again, I'm optimistic that the tide has turned, and it will be very positive. And as well, a lot of the Ukrainians that arrived in Canada are of the same opinion. Uh, Janice Stein, I'm going to give the last word to you. I don't share the optimism, unfortunately. Um, Winter is prime fighting time because the ground is frozen, the tanks roll. It's actually the mud season that is difficult to fight in. That's why that invasion happened in February, because they were up against the possibility of thaw. Russia has tremendous strategic capacity to absorb punishment. And unfortunately, that's often what war comes down to. It's not who's morally right. It's not even who has the better weapons. Uh, it's who can absorb 
the punishment for the longest period of time. So this is a very, very, very hard road in front of all of us. Well, and I think nothing encapsulated the situation better than having an air raid siren go off in the middle of a conversation, and our guest, Roman Waschuk, had to seek a safe place while others are ignoring it. Um, I think that kind of says a a lot of it. Uh, We're all hoping for the best, and thank you so much, uh, Peter Sturin and Dr. Janice Stein. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good day. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest scam coming to your phone, and it's one that's pretty easy to fall for when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. On the link, and then don't give uh, any further information. Uh, quite frankly, I can't speak to that particular one uh, specifically. I did receive a picture of where it takes you, and you have to input the information yourself. So it's they're fishing for information. Uh, uh, in this particular case, they're asking you for your first name, your last name, address, the city, the postal code, the phone number, your date of birth, all real personal information. Carmi, what's your take on this particular scam? Well, I think um, uh, Detective Constable Ferrer is absolutely right. It, it does look harmless when you first look at it, but it's one of those things where if you slow down and really look at the details, you start to notice things that look a little bit off. Like, for example, there's, you know, in a couple of places there are errors, you know, sort of the, the number sign sort of is bumped right up against the, the, the text. There's no space. Um, they use KM, all uppercase, not KM, KMH. The, the kind of language that you wouldn't see from someone who really knows what they're doing. It's better than it used to be, but still not quite 100%, and it stands out. Um, and, and, you know, and the thing is, in this case, it looks like it leads, if you click the link, which of course you never should, but if you do, they're asking for information. In some cases, that payload could be different. We just don't know. But because it's a text message, we think it looks legit. We're, we're almost inclined to say, yeah, no worries. You know, like, I, I don't want to be on the wrong side of the cops. Let me, let me follow this home. But because we don't, we don't assign that cynicism to these messages, it comes, it seems to be coming from a legitimate source. In this case, the police force. Uh, it could be a bank. It could be a government agency. It could be our insurance company. Maybe someone claiming to be our employer. Um, we're, we, we don't look closely enough to realize that they would never contact us in that way in the first place. There's something very off here. And so, you know, because we don't have that natural cynicism, because we're more inclined to answer things, um, we are at increased risk of falling victim to it. We really need to start stepping back. Whenever we do get a message that looks like this, instead of that natural inclination to respond, our initial inclination should be cynicism. Um, and if we really want to make sure, like, is this really the TPS? Is you know, the police really reaching out to me? Look them up online. Don't click the link. Call them and go, hey, I just got this text message. Is this something I should be worried about? And of course, they'll tell you, we never sent that out. Case closed. And is there an amount on it? No. No, there wasn't. Uh, what it did was that it told it tells the person, uh, you know, to settle the infraction with no defi- additional fees visit this link before the state. So it insinuates there would be additional fees, which people would be scared of. 
It's interesting to me because it used to be that you only got these scams by phone. Um, has there been a big increase in scams coming by text lately? Um, I've noticed a few. Uh, I can't say that, you know, there's a lot. Like, I've personally received them myself, even uh, once claiming to be the bank. And that's happened before. Um, but again, uh, just slow down, as Carmi said. Uh, step back. If you're absolutely not sure, call the business directly. Like, look at your card or look at any letters you've received for a phone number to call. And and if you're being extra cautious, call a friend or a trusted person or even call the police and we'll speak with you about it. Um, but as an increase, I can't say that I have noticed it, but they, they do come in from time to time and different scams do continue to happen. Carmi, what's your take on that? Uh, my take is that uh, cyber criminals are an adaptive sword. And basically what they do is they target us where we live. And increasingly, we live digitally. And so whereas we used to communicate exclusively by phone before the age of the Internet and smartphones and wireless connectivity, today we're using text messaging. We're using messaging attached to services like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And so we're seeing, like, I know I've, I've gotten these messages but both you know by text message as well as in Facebook Messenger, Instagram Messenger, all sorts of other messaging services, LinkedIn, um, because they're, they, they know that that's where we're spending our time. So they're not going to waste their time using services that aren't popular. So increasingly, this is going digital, even if the, the MO is, is, is decades old. They're just adapting it to the tools that we use today. And we've got to be ready for it. We have to think, hmm, would, would my insurance company, my bank or the police force be reaching out to me on Facebook Messenger? You know, like, again, one phone call will bear that out. The answer is no. Okay, let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. You're on the air. Thank you so much for taking my call. To make others aware of phone scam, a text message came through to my husband's phone and from our friend's phone. And it says, hi, and mentioned my husband's name. Um, Are you busy? I need a favor. Call, uh, text me back. It's urgent, right? So we were about to go out. So I said to my husband, "Phone next day," and we did phone the next day to find only to find out that a lot of his family and friends were calling him concerning the same message sent out. Okay, well, it's good mm-hmm. that they they called because uh, obviously uh, it it was a scam, and I'm I'm. I mean, it's it's strange, but the grandparent scam that has been around forever, I mean, that's having a big moment as well. Sita, thanks for your call. Take care. Thank okay, you. Okay, yeah. So uh, uh, my policy is don't, don't click on anything that looks uh, in the slightest bit weird. Carmi Levy, uh, what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, like in Sita's case, clearly that, uh, individual's phone was compromised and they targeted everyone on their contact list. And so, the, you know, our first thing, first thing you must do when you get a message like this is never click on that link. Always get out of that sort of conversational loop and check manually, check directly with the individual, check directly with the organization. And let's stop thinking that we have to answer every single message, even if it looks legit, even if it feels urgent, if we feel like we're going to get into trouble. That's, that's the psychology, the game that they're playing with us, and we need to sort of back ourselves away from that. Slow things down and you'll realize something about this doesn't add up. I should not follow through. 
And uh, Detective Constable Ferrer, what would you like to leave us with? Um, actually, Carmen really hit some good points there. They, they play on your emotions. They play on the urgency of things. And you also mentioned the grandparents' camps as well. Um, they're a big thing, and they're still happening. And they happen through phone calls as well, where they prey on people's emotions, saying that something has happened to um, a grandchild of someone. And uh, they elicit money from people and make these demands for money to pay for bail or to keep them out of jail and say there's a gag order, don't fall for this stuff. Um, you know, hang up, call a friend, call the person. Um, it's not real. And, uh, you know, they, they just play on your emotions and that's how they kind of get us. Okay, thank you both, Carmi Levy and Detective Constable Michael Ferreira. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. We're taking another break, and when we come back, potentially big fines for TTC riders who don't pay the fare, and there are a lot of people who don't pay the fare. We'll get to that on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Starting this fall, TTC riders could face fines of up to $425 if they don't pay their transit fares. A single adult cash fare still costs $325, $320 if you're using a Presto card, and the Transit Commission says it is losing huge bucks from fare evaders, $70.3 million in 2020. And I think I saw a stat that said something like one in five don't pay. So obviously, they do have to do something. But ironically, any money they ultimately collect from fines is not slated to go back to them. So what do you think of that? And is the fine proportional to the crime? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Stuart Green, Senior Spokesperson for the TTC. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. You, how did you come up with this fine thing? Uh, so that that uh, I just want to clarify that 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 is a maximum that we could impose. Uh, it's it's not the default fine. There are a couple of different things we can uh, issue fines for, or a couple of different fines we can issue for fare evasion. Four twenty five is is sort of the upper limit. Uh, we would also do things like uh, issue verbal and written cautions. Um, so so the the four twenty five is something that's actually been in place for many many years uh, for fare evasion. And so that's not a, it's not a new number, but um, it's certainly is a potential number that someone could face if they don't pay their $3 fare. Okay, so is that for a repeat offender? What would you have to do yeah. to get slapped? Yeah, so I mean, you know, like, it, for example, if we if you issue a written warning, uh, we would then have you in our database, and if we, you know, find you again and, and uh, you know, de- deem that you are a repeat offender, you could face that 425 uh, fine. Is, is that right? Sort of one in five people don't pay their fare? 
Uh, no, no. Our, our fare evasion rates are, are, are much, much lower than that. Uh, right now, about 97% of TTC customers pay their fare, which is great. And, you know, we thank them for that. Um, but on the streetcar network, we know that that rate is probably double that. It's probably 6 or 7% on the streetcar network. Um, and that's simply uh, a product of, of a change in, in how people board streetcars. We, um, a number of years ago, went to all-door boarding. Um, and, and with that came the fare inspection model. But, but that allowed us to speed up service. So we're delivering a better service, but, you know, it's, it's also based then on the honor system, whereas, you know, if you're entering a subway station, for example, you would have to tap your card or pay a fare to get uh, through a gate. So it's a little bit different on the, on the streetcar network. So that's really where we're focused, um, and we'll be focusing this fall. We'll be putting the fare inspectors uh, back out uh, to issue tickets in the fall. Uh, don't have a date yet, but I should point out, too, that the fare inspectors have been out for uh, during the pandemic. They, they came off the system um, for the first few weeks. Uh, our first few months, pardon me, to uh, to focus on more customer service type functions like uh, giving out masks and PPE, helping direct traffic in the stations to uh, to promote social distancing. But they were out there monitoring and it, uh, giving reminders. Uh, what we're doing in the fall is we're just going back to the ticketing. Um, and and Stuart, I just finally want to say, yeah, Stuart. Okay, so is uh, isn't part of the problem that it's not necessarily that easy? To pay a fare? I mean, I'm trying to think, uh, if I were to get on a streetcar, I don't carry change anymore. I don't use the TTC often enough to get a Presto card. You don't take credit cards. You don't give change for for bills or take debit cards. So um, would that be my fault if I didn't pay? Uh, well, I mean, there, there are ways to, there are, you know, there are ways to pay, right? I mean, and, and it's kind of your responsibility to know how to pay. You know, if you go to a place, if you go to a store that doesn't offer you, a, you know, a tap with your iPhone and that's all you have to pay, you don't get your good. So there, there's a, there's, there is a certain obligation on the, on the part of the customer to, to, you know, have, have the ability to pay the fare, uh, with, with the proper media. But by and large, you know, most people will, will transfer onto streetcars. Um, you know, the, the, the simplest thing to do, frankly, is get a Presto card and just have some money on it, and then you can tap your card. Now, we are moving to the open payment system, so when you get on a streetcar uh, or a fare gate or whatever, you'll be able to tap your debit card, your credit card, and it will deduct your fare right off that. And is that going to work when you get it? <laughs> uh, well, well, that, that's, uh, you know, we, we are working very closely with our friends at Presto uh, at Metrolinx, and, um, you know, this is something that they've committed to. Uh, okay, a couple of other questions. Sure. So if if the money that you ultimately collect in fines doesn't go to the TTC, where's it going? Well, it goes to the courts, but but we don't want to issue fines, right? Like, I mean, the bottom line here is that we don't want to have to issue fines to anybody because primarily for that reason. Uh, it's a lot of work to write people up and to issue the fines, um, and and we get zero cents. Um, it, it's far more, uh, it's far simpler for people to pay the three, three and a quarter to, uh, to, simpler you know, to, for you. to have their fare. Well, but, but keep in mind too, I mean, you know, there's, there is discretion in it when it comes to the ticketing and the, and the bylaw enforcement. If you, if, if we encounter someone on a streetcar who, um, has honestly tried to pay and simply didn't have their, you know, the right change or what, what, you know, what have you, uh, we could issue a caution at that point. Um, you know, and then just a reminder. So it's not automatic that if you, uh, don't have the right way to pay on the streetcar, you'd get a fine. That 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 would be uh, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, so, okay, so it it can be hard to actually pay. Uh, what about 
collecting the fines? I mean, how are how are you even going to have the people's correct names? So, so it's the same as if you get a speeding ticket or any kind of bylaw infraction ticket. Uh, you know, you'd be asked to show your ID, and you'd be written up in a in a in a formal bylaw. It's it's a it's a municipal code bylaw uh, that the TTC would have. But again, that that then becomes a court matter. We don't get any of that revenue from the fine that goes through the courts. Uh, we don't, you know, if people want to fight it, we don't fight them. They fight it through the courts. Uh, it, you know, it's 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 so much simpler to just pay your fare. Um, and again, you know, you'd only be getting that top level fine if you are a repeat offender. What about? I gather there's a big problem of uh, very uh, large people pretending they're 12 years old. Yeah, that that is definitely a problem that we've we've had too with people purchasing, uh, you know, uh, fraudulent, basically fraudulently uh, using uh, the improper uh, fair payment for their for their concession. So uh, adults using child cards. Um, and and that again is is a is something that uh, that we can inspect for, uh, and you can be fined for. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. We've got Tony in Etobicoke. Hi, Tony. Yeah, the way I see it is public transit is it, it's it's a monopoly, right? So when you don't take cash fare, I can't go to the next transit. You know, like I can at the corner store or the bakery or whoever wants to just take a card or doesn't want to take my American Express. I have other options. You don't have other options with uh, the TTC, and cash is legal tender, and you are part of the government. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess you can uh, take an Uber or walk or uh, drive. Uh, Stuart, what do you say to Tony? Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not quite clear on what the point is, but, but I will say that we do accept cash at, you know, at collector's booths. You can use cash on the streetcars. You can certainly pay with cash on buses. So uh, cash definitely does work at the TTC. Yeah, but uh, exact cash, or unless uh, you want to leave your $20 bill there. Or if you use a collector, they can provide change. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Let us hear from Vera in Woodbridge. Hi, Vera. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. Good. Well, I just want to make a comment. I don't take the bus. I used to years and years and years ago. But if you know you're going on a bus or a streetcar, that you need money. You've just got to prepare yourself. You know, these debit cards that they're trying to put in there, it's costing the TTC more money to put these uh, machines into every streetcar and every bus. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, well, we're, we're uh, supposed to be going. We're supposed to be going ahead, but everyone knows if you're going from A to B and, and back from B to A, it's a two-way thing. You got to have some change on you. That's all there is. Because sometimes I know my debit card the other day, the tap wasn't working at one store, but it was working at another. So if you're caught, you know you got to be prepared. You know where you're going. Okay, it's it's like where are you even going to get change? What are you going to do with it? it? A lot of people don't don't carry cash, let alone change. But change is uh, well, women. Chill. I think women carry change because they have a purse or a bag of some sort. I know men can carry a couple of tunings and loonies in their pockets. Okay, it's not the end of the world. Okay, I just don't want to see money spent on debit cards when there's no need. Okay, thanks. But that is the way of the world: tapping debit credit. Uh, uh, so uh, wh- when can we see that, Stuart? So 
that's something we're working on right now. In fact, uh, in the coming months, um, we'll be installing uh, the, the new devices that will allow for open payment. Uh, that's the term for being able to tap your debit card or credit card or your iPhone or whatever. Um, so that that is on the way. Those, those devices are being installed over the next uh, few months. And then uh, in 2023, uh, our friends at uh, Presto, um, have committed to having open payment on the TTC. They've already introduced it on other transit systems, um, and so uh, it'll be coming to the TTC next year. And uh, do you think that this new measure? Do you uh, you know have you assessed how how much of the problem it might take care of? I mean, seventy three point seventy point three million dollars. That's a huge amount. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll certainly help. But but let's not forget the people who are not paying their fare. Uh, there are two reasons people don't pay fare, primarily. One is that they simply can't afford it. And again, we can use discretion on how we enforce fare payment uh, with, with those who are in financial need. Uh, and then there are those who deliberately and wantonly don't pay their fare because they don't think they have to. Um, and we know we know primarily, for example, there's a, there's a significant problem in the downtown core on the streetcar network. Um, and, and that will be part of our, our focus areas, people who are willfully not paying their fare uh, and, and uh, you know, are not in clear financial need. Uh, because they can get away with it. Uh, Daryl well, think they can, yeah. Daryl has a question that's a little off topic. Daryl, quickly, please. Okay. Where does one get a hold of seniors' tickets anymore? Okay. Answer? Uh, uh, well, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think we still have, um, uh, and I'm happy to, if you have, if you have uh, this caller's information, I'm happy to get back to him. Um, we have vendors, we have third-party vendors that sell those. Uh, there's also the customer service center here, but um, I mean, really, you know, we're encouraging people to, to move to the Presto system because you can set different concessions on the Presto card, like a senior's concession. Okay, I hope he got that. So, Stuart, just to wrap things up, this is starting when in September? Yeah, so so the the fair inspectors are out now. Like you will see them on the system. You'll you'll have seen them over the last couple of years. They haven't gone away. Um, they just have not been issuing tickets. Uh, and part of the reason, one of the things that I was going to mention earlier is that we've we've uh, come up with a new protocol for how we uh, do fair inspection that's more inclusive uh, and respectful of of our demographics. So um, you'll be seeing that in uh, probably September or October is when you'll start to see the ticketing part of this resume. What what does that mean? more inclusive. Oh, so we well there were some concerns that uh, there was some discrimination. People felt that uh, they were being picked on because of their race or uh, you know other situations or other circumstances. So uh, we've introduced new training that is uh, you know more sensitivity training, uh, diversity. We've got uh, outside help uh, from a couple of University of Toronto professors who are expert in the area of diversity and inclusion. We've got a chief diversity officer here. So that is all going to play into into how we do fair inspection and enforce fair payment. So you'll ask white guys to see that their fare is paid too, right? Well, we'll we'll ask we'll ask everybody, but everybody will be treated equally. Yes. Okay, Stuart Green from the TTC. Thank you very much for that. Thanks, Libby. Bye bye. Take care. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.